If you guys would, turn to the book of Colossians. It's after Philippians in the New Testament. And we're going to kind of launch into a four-week series on the book of Colossians uh, as we run up toward Easter. And then we'll kind of change directions then. So if we could, I'd like to open us in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we, we come this morning uh, in a lot of different places. We come, some of us beat up, some of us confused, some of us hurt. The voice inside of us is either whining or crying out to you or desperate or hungry or lonely, confused about truth, confused about what is happening in our surroundings and through our circumstances, confused about other people, wanting love, wanting to be loved, wanting that, that intimacy with others but finding that we either get in the way ourselves or it's just difficult because we're all messy and none of us are perfect. Um, and yet here we are as brothers and sisters, as your children, your church. And I just pray that somehow this morning that you would pierce through all of the clutter, all of the hurt, all of the pain. Help knit us together, help us understand how much you love us how much you desire for us, how much you would speak to us, and that we would come out of here this morning different than we came in. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've been teaching, like, like as a preaching. I, don't, I mean, preaching is a weird word teaching whatever it is since I was in grad school and I started a, or I, I inherited a small college group at a, a local church. And I think ever since then, as I endeavored to teach, it's, it's always trying to um, help myself, because if any of you guys are teachers, you understand this. The person who learns the most is the teacher. Uh, it, it, whenever you teach something, whenever you digest something, whenever you interact with something, you really come to understand it or, or be affected by it the most. And so I've always tried to teach with this idea that things are so much more true and so much more simple than what we're usually aware of or confronted with or, or, or our minds kind of are able to grab hold of. That, that truth is so much deeper and so much more solid and the simplicity of, of life and, and what, is, what we were designed for, who we were designed by, all of that, that, that there's a simplicity to that. And, and I'm just convicted by that I uh, have been convicted by that now for f 15 years. And <clears throat> this particular book, the book of Colossians, is important along these lines because I've, I've grown increasing, increasingly aware of, I think, a tension or a frustration or, a, or a, an issue within the church in America or Christians in general, even myself. And I think it's, it's simply this, that we don't really understand the truth of Christ and that in not understanding the truth of Christ or the reality of Christ or who Jesus is or anything really clearly that way, then it makes it very hard for us to have a, 
a clean, simple understanding of, of how we relate to Christ and he to us and what that really means for our life and that we're able with clarity and confidence then to fall into that kind of relationship. And so the book of Colossians, I think, is written by Paul really along these lines. Of all the books in the New Testament, the Christology, the, the theology in the book of Colossians about who Jesus Christ is and what that ends up meaning to us is as clear and as strong and as simple as, as anywhere we're going to find. And Paul is writing it, I think, because he looks at a group of people that are confused, that are floundering, that have cobbled together a whole lot of different viewpoints. Uh, they have this really messy theology that's not even really, um, this messy truth that's not even really kind of solidly Christian. And so as Paul sees that, he writes to them, and he's trying to really clarify the Christology with the idea that then it will simplify and clarify how they're oriented to Christ. And so I think there's something really powerful in this book for us to grab hold of today. So I only have a little bit of time, so briefly, if you'll just look with me, I want to point out in chapter 1 and chapter 2, kind of a couple things that'll, that'll help us see what's going on here. And so Paul doesn't waste much time. Uh, Colossians is written to the, the church in Colossae. Colossae was not a significant town, but it was around a lot of significant towns. If you go to Asia Minor, um, Turkey today, Hierapolis, which was uh, an area that people would go to to be healed. There's these hot springs there. I think I've showed you pictures of Hierapolis before, but these hot springs that were reputed to, to have healing powers still do, uh, are believed to have healing powers. And near there, there's Laodicea, which was a very rich town, uh, where in the book of Revelation, the whole idea of, of being hot or cold, because they would pipe water in from different places. And so by the time it got there, you would have hot water, lukewarm, cold water, lukewarm. And so that was kind of this idea of it's not... Uh, desirable the way it was when it started. It, it, it's kind of just this watered-down lukewarmness. But there's these significant towns, and then there's this smaller town, which was not as significant, but it's a Roman town, and it's in a very cosmopolitan kind of crossways, and so there's a lot of ideas. And so Paul is writing to them, and he doesn't waste any time trying to get to the heart of the matter that Christ is supreme. And So here's this wonderful summary statement. Let's just jump in, chapter 1, verse 9. And Paul says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, heard about your faith, heard that there's a church in this town, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption through the forgiveness of sins. And so he begins kind of, here's this whole picture of the Christian life as you're oriented to Christ and as you're filled with knowledge and then as you lean into that because of the redemption you have, then you're going to get this inheritance. And there's this simple picture here of life oriented around Christ. And now he says, so let me tell you more about this Christ 
Um, and he goes into this whole passage that, that can be kind of summarized as the supremacy of Christ. And he talks about all creation being made through Christ and that Christ is above all these rulers and authorities and powers. And you see the same things echoed all throughout Scripture, certainly in the book of Hebrews where um, the writer to, uh, of the letter of, of Hebrews talks about how Christ is supreme over Old Testament figures like Moses and then supreme over everything and really trying to clarify this idea that there is one Christ who is the head and, and is supreme over all things. And therefore, the body flows out from him, and he's the head. Once you were, and then the gospel then pivots off of this, because once you were alienated from God, verse 21, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through, through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And that's if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And we begin to see something in here that I think I want to bring up because it's not, it's not something we talk about. It's something we actually purposely avoid talking about because it makes us feel very uncomfortable as Christians. Uh, Christians love things binary, we love things black and white, we love things either or, we love the dichotomy. And in loving the dichotomy, we create false dichotomies, uh, false either ors. And, and then we don't understand how to, uh, un, how, to, how to assimilate kind of the gray middle. We do this with a lot of things. And one of the things we're so excited about is what's called... Um, uh, the security of, of salvation or uh, um, assurance of salvation. We're excited about that. That when you're in Christ, when you're saved, you have assurance of salvation. And, and it's very comforting and it's a theological tenet. And so we, we derive a lot of satisfaction from it. And then secondly, we also protect it because it's a theological truth that Jesus says that that those that are in his hand, nobody can take those away from him. There's, there's an assurance to salvation. But there's also this other discussion that happens in the New Testament, and we're really uncomfortable with it because we don't know how to digest it. Because if we talk about this, does, does it mean that there's no assur assurance of salvation? Does it mean that we can't really rest in, in what's exciting about salvation here? Uh, how do we really understand that? Because there's a degreed property to our uh, knowledge of our assurance. A degreed property. If you read First Peter, it talks about if you do these things, you will have a greater assurance of your salvation. What, what, is that, what does that mean? That, that I have a greater assurance that I'm in Christ and I'm someday going to go to heaven? What does it mean to have that go up and down? If I do these things, my assurance will go up. Basically, my confidence in my relationship to Christ will go up. My ability to know that I am secure with him, it, it, it will kind of go up. And, and then Paul talks about, listen, um, you were alienated, but now you've been reconciled and you're, you're now holy in his sight without blemish if you continue in your faith. 
established and firmed, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So it's not that salvation just comes and goes and we don't have assurance or that that that's not fixed, but somehow as we go through our life and as we live our life, our understanding or our ability to understand our assurance somehow goes up or down as to our relationship with Christ or as to our standing firm with Christ, our ability to derive confidence in this hope that we have goes up and down by, by, by our faith. It's fascinating in the second great, uh, the, the first great awakening, and then also in the second great awakening, but in the first great awakening, you see all these Puritans these giants of the faith wrestling with their own assurance of salvation. You see it with Wesley, and then you see, uh, you see it with, um, uh, with Jonathan Edwards. They would, they would wrestle in these dark periods of their life going, am I even really saved? Do I, do I really even have assurance of my salvation in Christ? And, and they would wrestle with that and wrestle with that, and it's so messy and it's so complex, and you read this, and you're like, but you're Jonathan Edwards. I mean, you're the giant. Like, I don't like reading this passage of you wrestling this way because it makes me really uncomfortable. If in that moment you're wrestling with your salvation somehow, what does that mean about me? I'm not Jonathan Edwards. I'm like Johnny Edwards, you know, or... Uh, John, uh, John. Anyways... J. Edwards, Johnito, Little Edwards, I don't know, Paquito Edwards. Um, I don't like that. I don't, I don't, like, I don't like doubt. I, I push doubt away. I don't like when things aren't clean. I don't like when things aren't easy. I don't like when things aren't comfortable. I don't like when things aren't the way I want them to be just because I like to get my way. And so when you begin to say there's something important about how I relate to Christ and that that really matters, uh, if there's an easy out, I'll take it. I'll I'll take the easy out. And the easy out is this, a false dichotomy that says, your relationship to Christ is purely based on a transaction. It's, a, it's, a, it's as if you're a patient and he's a doctor. You, you go to sleep and you wake up and he's done his work and now the transaction is done. It's done. You've been fixed. <laughs> Images going through my mind. The... Uh, you, you've been fixed, and now the rest of your life, you're, you're, you're a new creation. You're his. You're, you're a Christ follower, and oh, by the way, you're saved, and you're going to heaven, and it's all roses because he did that work, that surgery. And, and we end up over here kind of knowing something's incomplete. Something's not quite full. It's not quite whole. It's, it's, I don't know what to do with it. And in um, those days, I think it was the same thing. And so in Colossians, we see in chapter 2, Paul begins to address the heresy that's going on. And he talks about, hey, 
You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. God made you alive in Christ. He forgave your sins. He canceled this code. So why do you still, verse 16, why, why are you getting caught up in these early forms of Gnosticism, not full-blown Gnosticism, but this like uh, view of looking at earthly things in this skewed perspective and, and thinking that what you eat and drink matters or that by contorting yourself for these new moon celebrations or these other things that there's something there that's going to be gained. And then there's this false humility and you're praying to angels. There's these mediators, this kind of spirituality that you've developed in this town and, and that's not okay. People go into these great details about these visions. They're, they're mystic and, and their unspiritual mind puffs them up with these idle notions. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. You've died with Christ, so these other things are of no value. So when we don't understand Christ, we get confused. We're like, man, ah, it's just something happened. I don't really understand the fullness of that. I don't, I don't understand the significance of that. I, I feel like I was a passive agent in it, so now I don't really know how Christ factors into it. Um, and I don't know about you guys. How many of you have ever really wondered, like, I don't know how Christ factors into anything? I mean, he made the whole universe through himself, but wasn't he like six foot one and kind of Jewish and wore a robe? Like, I, I don't know how to understand all that. Like, that's kind of confusing, and, and it's, it's really hard to understand whether to get a, a grande latte or a vente latte in light of the guy that's six foot one and created the whole universe somehow through himself. Anyone else? Or am I just the only one? You know, I, I don't understand all that. But I know I was saved by this transaction. I'm fixed now. It's, I'm different. Um... When we don't understand all of that, what begins to happen is we begin to allow false ideas to crop up into our worldview, our, our religious map of the world, and we begin to look at things around us and grab them, and it becomes Jesus plus. Jesus plus. Jesus plus. Um, these weird spiritual things I'm going to follow. Jesus plus looking to this for help and aid. Jesus plus identifying with this group of people that look like they've got it going on. Jesus plus beating my body and, and thinking that I'm super spiritual because I'm going to be against eating certain foods or drinking certain things or, or whatever it is. Jesus plus... And we do that today too. And it, and it looks like distraction in the TV shows. And it's Jesus plus Downton Abbey is going gonna, is gonna to really ground me. Um, and it's Jesus plus um, living to be 100. I need to, I need to live to be 100. I'm going to work out, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, because there's this sense of satisfaction I derive by being so into my health 
um, that, I, that I almost feel like that, that's going to ground me too. Or it's Jesus plus yoga. Or it's Jesus plus my circle of friends. And I'll do whatever they do. Because I need, I need their fellowship. Without it, I would, I would be lost. So whatever they're going to be into, I'm going to be into it too. And it's Jesus plus that. And then it's Jesus plus a bunch of self-help books because, man, I'm screaming on the inside and I don't know how to identify solutions with life and I'm struggling to make sense of it all. And, and I don't know how, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with just this. It's too ethereal for me. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really get into the psychology of today, the psychology of our age. And Paul goes on and talks about it being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy, which, by the way, is not a slam on philosophy. This is a total side, total, total side. It needs to be talked about. Because when we started Antioch, there was a group of people in this town that were warned not to go to Antioch because that guy has a master's degree in philosophy. And Paul says in Colossians, this is, I'm dead serious. I'm still bitter. This is, I work out my issues. This, some people do counseling. I preach. And, uh, and, and so these people were told, Paul says, don't de- uh, be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. That guy has a degree in philosophy. You should really watch out for him. And I was just like, is that, is that what it's come to in Christianity, that we don't even know how to think? Um, taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. He is, he is describing what kind of philosophy he's, he's warning these people again, the, the kind of philosophy that's hollow and deceptive. It's a certain type of philosophy, and philosophy is a really big word, okay? You can talk about certain philosophies, certain ideas about reality, or you can talk about the discipline of philosophy, which has to do with metaphys- uh, what, what exists, how we come to know things, the discipline of logic. You know that logic is a subcategory of philosophy? It's, it's, it's what you study when you study philosophy. So I said to this particular girl, I said, hey, listen, go back to that person and say, when you walk to your car at Barnes & Noble and it's in the winter and you slip on the way, you grab the handle and there's ice on the handle and your hand, hand slips off the door handle and you get in the car, do you drive different? She's like, okay, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, ask them. If that happens, this, then this, and this, do you drive different? And she says, well, I would assume they would drive different. And I'm like, well, why? Because logically speaking, if it's icy here and icy here, I can deduce that it's going to be icy on the road, and I'm going to act accordingly. Well, that's a logical deduction, the kind that we do every day. It's a discipline of, of logic, critical thinking, and philosophy. It, it's not that philosophy or logic are, are inherently bad. Paul's talking about these people that have gotten into the church and are espousing philosophical ideas to a certain sect that are going to lead people away to a more human, more man-centered uh, less Christ-centered view of reality, and that's dangerous. He's not talking about philosophy being bad or sociology or, or anything else that's, that's a neutral category. Does that make sense? Um, so Paul says, ah, 
if you have a deficient view of Christ, you're going to end up with these things, and so we do too. And, and so I, I believe that truth matters. I believe that when we really come to understand things, that it's, it's more simple. And I, I believe that what Paul is saying in this whole book here is that we have to understand the supremacy of Christ in all things. And so it's not that Christ isn't su- supreme in my being saved, him dying for my sins. He's supreme there, but not only there. And it's not that Christ is supreme in the creation of the world that's really hard to wrap my mind around. He's saying that's like the biggest, largest thing. There's nothing that's going to be more supreme than Christ. What, what Paul is arguing with that is that I'm going all the way to the edge, to the boundary, to the extreme, and saying Christ is there and he's supreme. He's the first, he's the head, he's over it all, it's all through him. You can't go all the way to here and then pop into an area where Christ doesn't reign supreme. He goes all the way to the extreme. So it's not that i got to understand how that happened. What i got to understand is Christ and his supremacy goes all the way to the edge. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he's supreme in my salvation as a surgeon, as a doctor, sure. He's supreme all the way to the edges of my reality, for sure. And he's supreme in my pain, yes. Is he supreme in what it is I do and who I need to serve as my Lord? Absolutely. Is he supreme in this community where I'm craving relational fulfillment? Yes, he's supreme there too. Is he supreme in my doubts? Absolutely. Is he supreme first, above, beneath, around, and important in all that I do, all that I plan, all that I have, all that I hold, all that I'm going to come up with, absolutely. And so Christ is, uh, is, is supreme, and Paul is saying we've got to understand the supremacy of Christ because when we look for submission to Christ and we don't find it, it's because first Christ was not supreme. Submission to Christ follows naturally from the supremacy of Christ. And when we just get so fixed up on the atonement, and then we walk over and go, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. I mean, I had the surgery. Now what? We don't really begin to build our life on a foundation of Christ. We don't really begin to put him underneath and in front of everything so that everything in our life begins to be repatterned, salted with, filtered through this Christ-centeredness that begins to take over everything about us as we continue on in our faith. The relevance of Christ comes out of just this one area in which Christ operates. And it informs and speaks to everything about my universe. And when we look for submission to Christ and we don't find it, it's because we have not first understood the supremacy of Christ. And so I stand here this morning trying to say we are a Christ-centered church. We are Christians and we go by that name. We are to be people whose whole lives 
are infused with the reality that Christ is above everything and that we submit to that. And the life we live in the body, we no longer live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, Turn to Galatians real quick. Because I want you guys to mark a couple things to read. I've been tired lately. And when you get tired in life, you want to punish people. Have you ever noticed that? And homework is the great punisher. So I'm going to start giving homework just to feel better about that. So Galatians chapter 2. In verse 19, it says this, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it doesn't just stop there. And it goes on. It says, And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So you have this interesting reality of as I'm being saved and as I'm being reconciled to God, it now colors like a dye everything moving forward. I'm not earning that salvation. I've been so literally and fundamentally changed by that salvation that now everything manifests differently. It's as if Christ is now working himself out through me. You want to understand what the fruit of the Spirit is? It's when everything is so colored by my relationship with God and the Holy Spirit working in me that as things come out of me, they're colored differently and it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's Christ living through me. It's not me anymore and that this is this reality of the supremacy of Christ which leads to submission so that it all kind of goes together like this in a very simple, coherent worldview. What do I do with my time? Christ, what's going to honor you? What do I do with my decisions? Christ, what would you have for me? Where do I put my passions? Christ, where are your passions? What do I derive as my purpose in life? God, why did you make me? Jesus, where are you leading me? And everything gets colored. And as I do that, and as I grow into that, I gain a greater assurance of my salvation. That that surgery took, I can see it evidenced in my life. You read the book of 1 John, you see the difference between what it looks like when you're, when you're manifesting and, and living as Christ lived and the joy that can come from the confidence of your relationship with Christ. And then what happens when you're not living like that and going, there's, there's no fruit where there should be fruit. Something's really fundamentally going on down at the bottom here. And so what we have to understand is we're converted here, but that conversion is an ongoing working out, an ongoing conversion of all of our being into submission to Christ who is the head. So we could say it this way, we were saved and we are being saved. And I think we have to live that way that, that our salvation is a primary concern to us we, we walk around going like, man, that guy down the road, his salvation's a kind of concern to me. Or my kids, man, their salvation's a concern to me. And what I want to say is our ongoing conversion into Christ-likeness ought to be a concern for us. You know, the fascinating thing about this whole idea, is Jesus the only way? 
What's fascinating about that is in John 14, 6, when you see that, who does he say that to? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, who does he say it to? He says it to his disciples. I'm saying to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is the only way. We need to walk out knowing that Jesus is the only way. When Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, he said the same theology, but he said it very different. How did he say it? Man, your life, I know your life. I know the story of your, your life. I, I see your hurt. And you know what? I know it's not satisfying you. I know that you're hurting. I know that you're empty. And if you would ask me, I would fill you. I would heal you. I would care for you. I would give you this living water that would well up in you and change and remake you. See, the funny thing is, when Jesus talks to the outsider, he doesn't minimize his role in salvation, but he doesn't come across like, your religion's wrong, mine's right, Jesus is the only way. You know what I'm saying? But that's the way we always talk about Jesus being the only way, as if it's a, a debate between who's right and who's wrong with religions. In this conversation, we come at it with grace. I mean, we, we come at it with grace. It's not about us winning. It's about them winning by finding the answer that they've been looking for or the salvation that they've longed for. And so we come at it with language, seasoned with salt, about them. Jesus saves the I am the way language for Christians. You, me, we need to be converted into Christ-likeness. He's the only way. It's not Jesus plus. It's the supremacy of Christ in all things and that from that we're able to submit into that in all things. And so this morning I, I'm asking you, what's your foundation? Do you know what your foundation is? Did you, were you, I mean, were you always a Christian or did you kind of just ease into Christianity to where you never really destroyed the old foundation and began to build up on, on a foundation a, a fixed kind of firm foundation. That's why late life converts, y y you always look at this radical conversion a lot of times because they're on this crappy foundation that's been just ruining them and, and they have this crazy experience of like, uh-uh, and they're glad to have this new foundation and it's not this, this hodgepodge, slowly emerging foundation. There's sometimes a great benefit to being a late life convert. Um, but whether you're a late life convert or, or, or slow process, whatever it is, what is underneath you? What are you looking for for satisfaction? What are you looking for for answers? Who are you looking to to save you or to continue to lead you or guide you or get you out of whatever the me mess and the, and the mix that you're in? And so that's the question this morning. Is Christ enough? Is Christ supreme? Is Christ go all the way to the edges for you? Or does he just operate in, within these confines? Because if Christ isn't supreme in our lives, if he's not the way and the truth and the life for us as Christians, then it's going to be Jesus plus. 
and we're not going to really be able to submit. So when we look for holiness, we won't find it. When we look for passion, we won't find it. When we look for a sense of purpose, we won't find it. When we look for someone who's going to have confidence in their standing with God, and we want to see that, that beautiful clarity and assurance and confidence, if we really scratch beneath the surface, we probably won't find it. So it starts with the supremacy of Christ, leads into our full submission into Christ in this wonderful Christology, this beautiful simplicity about what it means to live the way, the truth, and the life begins to emerge, and we're able to just take hold of that, find our satisfaction in that. So we're going to do a worship, whole worship set here at the end. Here's what worship is. It's prayer put to music. It's prayer put to music so that other distractions might go away, so that you might be able to center yourself in a conversation with God where the, the heart cry that you've got, either of joy and celebration because you see God working in your life and, and you just want to give thanks with joy, like Paul talked about, or you come crying either desperate because of your situation, your circumstances, your grief, or because of your sense of lostness, but you reach out and you cry out to God asking that today, I mean, th there are only seconds in this universe. Do you know that? I mean, all of reality passes through seconds. All big change, all big change in your life, salvation itself passes through seconds. It happens at a place and a time. Does that make sense? This is a place and a time. These are seconds in your life. Worship is an opportunity for whether you're celebrating or crying out for you to connect with God and say, all that you did for me in reconciling me to yourself through Jesus Christ, I want all of that. I want that to be the, the sum total of my foundation and I want to submit into that. So help me, God, because I need your help. That's what we're doing right now with worship. So whether you close your eyes, sit, stand, um, do backflips or cartwheels, I don't care. But this is time to connect with God. Uh, so let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, there's a, a weird spirituality where we talk about your son, we talk about his, his role in our life, we talk about the bigness, and it can feel so very irrelevant to life. I pray that you would help pull us away from that, ground us in the relevance, in the sufficiency of Jesus for our day-to-day -day life. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would meet us and lead us as a shepherd that we would know the safety and the comfort of that and that you would work with our failings and, and our challenges and our, the weakness of our faith and help grow us up into a confident, uh, a confident position within you. Thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name.